الجزيره بودكاست Hitting the brakes on artificial intelligence systems, Elon Musk and many other tech experts are calling for a six-month pause. They say there needs to be more research into possible risks, but will this happen? And how much of a threat is AI? I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So our guests today in Vancouver, Gary Marcus, an emeritus professor at New York University and the founder of Robust AI and Geometric AI, startups acquired by Uber. In Edinburgh, Atusa Kastirzada, Director of Research at the University of Edinburgh's Center for Technomoral Futures. And in Los Angeles, Ramesh Srinivasan, a professor at the University of California and founder of the Digital Cultures Lab Research Group. Gary, let's go to you first. You signed this open letter. Tell us why. Perfect. Let me start with that. I don't actually expect it to be a moratorium, but I think the situation is urgent. And I think the letter has gotten this on everybody's agenda, and that's terrific. I don't actually think machines are too smart. I think they're too unreliable, non-trustworthy. They make up stuff all the time. Um, somebody just committed suicide after their dialogue with a chatbot. I think there are all kinds of dangers here. Maybe they'll be too smart eventually. I don't think they are now, but they're already being widely adopted. There's almost no regulation, and the corporates are fairly irresponsible about it, in my view. Um, and so this is a perfect storm. And so even though I don't expect a pause per se, I think that we really need to look at what we're doing here. Atusa, you also signed the letter. Yeah. Yeah, because I think this letter demonstrates something really important that many scientists and innovators are now really fearful about what generative AI models can do. Uh, and they see that they have failed to listen to the warnings of AI ethics and regulators over the years. And that kind of confession about their fear for me is absolutely valuable. Now, the actions they suggest to take to me seem bizarre, and I think they're highly unlikely to be materialized. I actually argue that it's practically impossible to see the materialization of what they say, uh, given the national and global political economic um, arrangements in the world. But the good thing is that now we are we can have like good conversations with these innovators and scientists, uh, talking about possibilities for um, a coordinated uh, collaborative effort. Because I think that's really what we need if we want to, in a useful way, regulate and govern the systems. Ramesh, do you see do you see all the AI labs and governments and Uh, the military around the world that is using this already, do you see everybody just pausing this for a moment, for six months? Well, I support the idea of a moratorium, um, but I don't think that it's likely to be followed. And I also agree with what Gary just said, that what we have with these systems is not actual artificial intelligence. We have behavioral mimicry, right? These systems are not intelligent. They don't reason. They don't think. They don't process. They don't feel. This is more uh, using large amounts of data to generate patterns based on historical data sources. So it's very, very different. And I think in general, it's not merely about a moratorium on AI. I think it's about a large-scale economic and democracy-focused notion of regulation of all big big tech data surveillance-oriented companies. Ramesh, what difference does it make whether it's actual intelligence in the way that we're capable of or whether it produces the same effects? Because when I'm chatting with ChatGPT, I can't really tell the difference. That's true because it's mimicking human behavior, but it tends to mimic mass cultural patterns. It lacks any creativity. It lacks any sense of morality whatsoever. 
um, you can basically uh, teach the system that the world is flat or the world is round, and it will do either. Um, so in a, in a sense, what's actually being sacrificed is what actually makes us human. So the, the cause of AI was really about trying to understand, as a former AI developer, human intelligence and trying to build machines that could do things in that way. And as humans, we're highly creative, but we don't know exactly why we're creative. We have the capacity to be irrational at times. These systems uh, might hallucinate because they basically kind of short circuit by having too much content or kind of what they call hallucinating, right? But at the same time, these systems are actually flattening human creativity and human intelligence. So in that sense, they're actually deeply destructive in my mind to the capacity to learn and grow, let alone questions of diversity, democracy, democracy, and the economics associated with this, which I think are extremely important to discuss. Okay, so Gary, you have founded two uh, AI companies, right? And so you have worked with this technology. Before we launch into how dangerous it could be, whether it needs to be stopped, how does it actually work? Because I think a lot of us are just discovering really this in the last few weeks. It's old news to the AI community, but most of us are not part of the AI community. I think the first thing people have to realize is that AI is not magic. It's a set of tools, and each of those tools has strengths and weaknesses. It would be like talking about a toolkit as if the whole thing does everything you need. You really need to understand particular tools and where you use them. There are lots of species of AI that are out there. For example, classical symbolic AI that's been around for 75 years powers the route planning in your GPS system. It has nothing to do with the neural networks that are popular right now. The new systems are called neural networks. There are actually lots of kinds of neural networks. Um, and they have their strengths and their weaknesses. They're very good at pattern recognition. They're not very good, as the other guest said, at reasoning. And they're not very re <coughs> reliable. They're not very good at truth. Um, so they make stuff up all the time. They can be exploited by bad actors into making up crazy, <coughs> excuse me, conspiracy theories. Um, but the way the system that is most dominant now, the way it works is essentially by mimicry, as, as suggested there. They absorb a lot of data and they try to match the patterns but they don't have a detailed understanding of what they're talking about. So they make up things like saying that Elon Musk died in a car crash in 2018 when he didn't really, or a biography of me by Bard, one of the recent systems <clears throat> that made up a title for my book, made up quotes about me, mistake, uh, made mistakes about what the argument was in that book and so forth. So one of the problems here is they're just not trustworthy. When they start to give people medical advice, for example, some of that advice is probably not gonna be good, but it's gonna look authoritative as if as if it were true um, and knowledgeable and so forth. And part but, of the problem here is Gary, the public doesn't But Gary, if understand. I can jump in, isn't, isn't what you're saying there is that they, they still make mistakes, but this technology is still fairly new. And like any technology, it gets refined, right? It, it gets improved upon. Well, in some ways, it's actually getting worse. So, for example, it's getting worse, apparently, according to a NewsGuard study that was released earlier <coughs> this week at discriminating truth from falsehood. So it's getting more and more plausible. If you read it, it seems more and more true, but it's not actually getting more and more true. And I think for technical reasons, if you give me the time, I can go into um, the fundamental architecture is just not good at facts. It's good at mimicry of large statistical patterns, but not representing individual facts about the world. It's not really getting better at that. Okay. In, um, in fact, if I could just say one more thing, sure. it's really, really important. 
We did not call for a ban on all of artificial intelligence. We called for a ban on one specific thing and encouraged, as you said in your opening statement, but a lot of people miss, researching other things like how to make this stuff trustworthy and reliable. So we're not saying don't do any AI at all, which is how almost everybody is interpreting. But if you actually read the letter, it's only one specific project, mm. which is making a more and more plausible but uncontrollable beast that could be used for all kinds of bad purposes. Atusa, if the technology is not actually intelligent and it's just mimicry and it's maybe not as, you know, it doesn't have the wow factor that, that perhaps first-time users will find in it, then why is it so urgent for us to regulate it and to put rules and norms around it and have watchdogs around it? Sure. I think one of the biggest problems, and to me it sounds like that's like the most important problem, is that these technologies are... Uh, very much good at producing information that um, is not um, adaptable with any conception of truth. And so they can, uh, they are really good in producing uh, misinformation and disinformation and very good at uh, facilitating the spread of different kinds of propaganda and conspiracy theories. Um, and so you can imagine uh, there are many malicious actors in the world that can use these systems in order to um, create and craft stories that um, sound plausible and interesting for communities of people. And uh, basically, um, they, these systems can prevent any kind of useful, um, interesting democratic conversations between groups of people because they can um, propagate propaganda, as I said. So they um, can be used for really interesting things if you want to learn about quantum mechanics and you have no idea about it, you can go and have a chat with the systems. And many of the conversations are low stake, right? But many of the conversations pertain to our religious beliefs, political beliefs, and the notion of truth when we go to the realm of politics and history and religion is a very completely kind of different notion as compared to when we are talking about the truth of uh, the existence of a table in this room or not. And because these systems, um, as the previous speakers mentioned, are really good in, in, in mimicking human, um, they can kind of mimic uh, political information, political statements that some humans have given, and so they can kind of be used in order to um, enforce uh, or reinforce some kinds of biases. Again, these systems are trained on some specific data. They can be fine-tuned on um, the general models, can be fine-tuned on specific kinds of text. And so you can just easily imagine how many misuses of these free systems well, can be. Well, let's, let's uh, put one of those, uh, those misuses up on screen. We've got pictures of... Uh, of the Pope, and this went viral over the last few days, so I'm pretty sure you've all seen them. Pictures of uh, the Pope in a long, white, uh, extravagant puffer jacket, and people thought he had so much swag and he was so fashionable. This is completely made up. Uh, it's not his puffer jacket. Don't even know if the jacket actually exists in real life, but the point is that this was not a picture. This was generated by AI. Uh, we can show you another picture, Donald Trump being arrested uh, in a scene. It looks like he's being arrested maybe at the foot of Trump Tower in New York. It's unclear. But the picture, the point is that the, the, the visual, I'm not even going to call it a picture, looks very believable. So you talk about truth. Those are just some early day examples of, of things that just in the last few days people have believed, have seen, and actually it turned out they were generated by AI. Um, Ramesh, the... What happens if we find ourselves in a world where we don't know if we can trust the words we hear and the pictures we see? It's deeply destructive. And I think that it's also important to note 
the basis of all of this system, that the ways these systems work is based on all of our personal data, right? So we live in a world where our personal data, without us even really being aware of it, is being collected indiscriminately by third parties, corporations and states pretty much all the time. Fast computers and infinitely cheap, essentially cloud-based storage is what creates these sorts of systems. And they use patterns and correlation to generate truths and false truths. And one thing we've learned quite clearly with many of our big tech platforms, especially our social media platforms, is they don't just order the world in any sort of rational or neutral way, if that were to even exist. They tend to prioritize content that will grab our attention, hijack our dopamine and our cortisol, and sensationalize us. Let me turn to uh, Gary. Gary, I want to put to you the doomsday scenario that I'm sure you're already aware of because it's making the rounds in the AI community. And this was one that was detailed by Eliezer Yudkowsky. He's widely regarded as a founder in the field of alignment. Alignment is kind of the buzzword in AI um, for our viewers between that, that involves aligning the robots with humans' interests and values. So he's a, he's a leading researcher in that field and he wrote an article saying this, quote, Many researchers steeped in these issues, including myself, expect that the most likely result of building a superhumanly smart AI under anything remotely like the current circumstances is that literally everyone on Earth will die. Not as in maybe possibly some remote chance, but as in that is the obvious thing that would happen. The moratorium on new large training, uh, on new large training runs needs to be indefinite and worldwide. There can be no exceptions, including for governments or militaries. How do you feel about that? Everybody would die if we let AI development continue unchecked. I, I think we have no idea. I think that's overstated. I think he's suggesting it as a hundred percent probability, and it's a much smaller probability, but it's not zero. Um, we don't have Wait, let, any pause sense for a second. Of, You're saying the probability that everybody would die as a result of AI is not zero in your view. There's yeah, a chance that that could happen. Large, but it's not. But it's not zero. Um, he, he, I'm going to explain my answer. Um, what we have seen in recent weeks is that the corporates don't really care, that we have no governance in place, that we don't really know what these systems are capable of, and they're only going to get more powerful. You know, one example that probably a lot of people saw is that ChatGPT um, <coughs> uh, lied, basically, um, not literally so because it has no intentions, but um, tricked a human user into doing captures by saying that it was a machine with a visual, I mean, there was a person with a visual impairment when it was actually a machine. And so that's an example of the way that these systems can actually trick humans into doing things. I don't think that the Terminator scenario is the right one to worry about where machines <coughs> develop some kind of will and want to take us over. But I do think that bad actors can use these things in ways that we just have no idea of. You know, new things are happening every day. The systems are getting more powerful. And so that's why I favor at least a little bit of a pause to get a handle on what's going on here, um, especially in the recognition that governments don't yet know what to do and that the corporates are not really being super responsible about it. I mean, imagine that this technology were 100,000 times um, more efficient, more powerful, more sensible, and a bad actor gets hold of them. What does that mean? We don't actually understand. Mm. So I don't think as a scientist I can say, probability is zero. As a scientist, I can say it's unlikely. A lot of things have to come together in different ways, but I can't say here is a guarantee that that's not a possible option, especially given the political climate that I'm seeing. Ramesh, can artificial intelligence ever become sentient? 
the, this, these types of AI systems absolutely are not sentient on any level in the ways in which humans operate. They can fool us, they can dupe us, they can act like human beings, but in reality, what they're actually doing is just patterning themselves based on stuff that's being collected about us, surveil, you know, based on surveillance of us, right? All the while, exploiting our personal data, hijacking a digital economy that's more unequal, especially on a global level. And you know, when these systems are sort of uh, going off the rails, hiring people in Kenya at $1 an hour to try to clean it up, just like Facebook did with content moderators in the Philippines. So let's move completely away from this, this sensationalizing, the catastrophizing blue pill, red pill nonsense that mm. I read in the New York Times this week. And let's, re let's mm. see these the systems for what they are, obfuscating human creativity, dumbing things down, and, and essentially exploiting a data economy that's highly unequal and unjust. Okay, so what's, um, Tusa, what's the, what's the worst case scenario? What's the likely, like reasonably likely worst case scenario that you're looking at and that you hope can be averted, right? If we're gonna just set the doomsday scenario aside because that appears to be out there, um, far out there, I mean, what do you think is, the likely thing we need to prepare for that would happen if, you know, if we don't have guardrails in place? Um, so I think we first need to kind of clean up our conception of existential risk. I think this conception of existential risk coming out of a Terminator is just, to, in my view, is just a fictitious uh, story. And what happens is that we face existential risk, but the reason that we face existential risk is that we have this gradual uh, kind of ignorance of all of the ethical and social and political and economic risks that have been there. So gradually we are developing better and better systems that can do things that erode our sense of cognitive ab abilities, that kind of uh, ask us, uh, like put us in a position to ask questions about what does it mean to human. And, and that is where we face existential risk. So this gradual accumulation of ethical, social, political risk put us and brings us to the to the existential dangers. So if we kind of like buy into this uh, this kind of analysis and that's that's a position that that I kind of defend and work on then we need to think about multiplicity and plurality of ways to tame the systems but not just the systems basically the the companies and the the the, the institutions that give rise to to the production of these systems and we need to kind of make a reconfiguration of um, economic and political arrangements um, in, I think, mainly the United States um, and other parts of the world. But I say the United States because many of these generative AI models that have captured the imagination of the public in the world is coming from there. So, so sorry, what does that look like to, re to reconfigure political and economic arrangements? What do you, what do you mean concretely? Yeah, so I mean, that, uh, it should not really be the case that one country in the world or a specific part of a, con of, of, uh, a country kind of decides to develop these systems and then, and then releases these systems for free. And basically, they, they say these systems are going to benefit all of humanity without having a concrete sense of what, what is humanity, what is all of humanity, and what does it mean to benefit all of humanity. So do you so mean that it should be government controlled then? Yeah, I think there should be uh, government control, but also there should be global, like meaningful global coordination. It shouldn't be the case that just some 
people from different countries come together and talk together and then they go. There should be some global coordinations that materializes some of these concerns and safeguards the development of these systems in the name of innovation is great for the whole world mm. and let's make AI systems that benefit all of humanity. That kind of narrative should be stopped and I think all of us need to react and, and reflect on this narrative and kind of propose a different dream, a different imagination that we want to move towards. And then these AI systems can become uh, useful for humanity. So Gary, Atusa did mention a word that's been conspicuously absent from this conversation so far, which is innovation. And again, you created two AI-based companies, so you must believe on some pretty fundamental level that this innovation can also be used for good, right? Or at least, at the very least, in ways that are not, not harmful to humanity. Um, what are the what are the perhaps the opportunities that it presents? What I mean, give us some hope. I think that we can have hope that we'll build better AI. I think there are some positive uses of this particular technology that we have right now. These large language models, but I think that large language models are fraught with risk. I don't think they're going to kill us all. You know, I said not zero. I don't think it's very likely. Um, but I do think it's likely that it's going to have some pretty dystopian effects on the fabric of society. You know, misinformation, the thing that didn't get really emphasized is the vast quantity of how this is going to happen. We're going to have to see it at much greater scale than we've ever seen before. We're going to see cybercrime, the new, new scale that we haven't seen before. I think the risks we should be focusing on, at least for now, are near term, but they're immense. Um, yes, there are some value in these current systems. They can, for example, help computer programmers program faster, but I'm not sure that's worth the risk. At the same time, I'm not saying stifle innovation. I'm saying the innovation should be around how to make these systems truthful, ethical, ethical, uh, trustworthy, uh, et cetera. How to make these so that they're stable systems that we can use. Right now, they're like bulls in a china shop. They're powerful, they're reckless. We don't have any real control over them. We should be striving towards an AI that we control rather than that's unpredictable mm. and, and dangerous. And that's kind of what we have now. So I'm not saying every innovation is a good one. I'm saying innovation can be a good thing. We need to innovate something different than this particular technology, or we need to innovate better guardrails around the technology. That might be okay too. Um, we might have to invent new policies around um, <coughs> misinformation, new tools to detect it in the way that we have new tools to detect spam. So there's lots of things we might innovate on, but there's this idea fix about this one tech and this one tech has problems. We shouldn't just assume it's the right one. We've had 15 different tools in the history of AI this one happens to do some things well. There's a lot of money behind it. Doesn't mean it's the right innovation. We do need innovation, but maybe not this one. So in the spirit, obviously, of testing the, testing the tool and the system, I asked it to, to generate some questions to ask you guys. Um, and so here, it, it did come up with a few good ones. If you could create AI to tackle one global crisis, which would you choose? Uh, let me go to Ramesh for this one. Tackle one global <laughs> crisis with AI. How would you? What global crisis, and how would it do it? I would. I would. I would ask the the AI system to uh, to recognize what are the components of the economy that is supporting such an AI system, right? So here's here's the here are the two major challenges that I see that are very interconnected to these to this technology. One is the global economics associated with, right? We live on a, in a sort of digital economy that's becoming more and more futile by the moment where personal data uh, is, is being harvested 
by uh, for corporate valuation. Sometimes that's not even associated with profitability. Hey, AI, what are you going? To, what do you want to do about that? What about the climactic concerns as well? Um, recognizing, as your previous, as as the previous guests mentioned, or before the previous mentioned, that we have to have global dialogues about these technologies to ensure that these technologies actually support a global community. Because the only way we're going to deal with climate issues is by figuring out how we're going to share the earth and repair the earth. And that involves a type of global dialogue that is using many different voices around the world that is the opposite of what's occurring with All these right. sorts of systems. So All right. that's, that's, that, that's, I think those are critical issues that I think have to be connected to every major technology platform First and foremost, we need to think about economic welfare and democratic welfare. All right, fix its own business model and think about the environment. Ramesh, thank you. Uh, Atusa, I'm going to give you, it's very unfair what I'm about to do to you, I'm going to give you 40 seconds to tackle this one last AI-generated question. If, <laughs> how do you envision the role of AI in shaping the future of humanity? Good luck. Um, I would like the AI to first uh, learn about humanity, and in order to learn about humanity, the AI needs to go and talk to many or learn from different communities and their perspectives and what they want and how they see the world. And um, I think the training of this, uh, the training data that these systems receive, if they want to get a view about different parts of the world, should include narratives, very rich and detailed narratives of people from all around the world. And then I would say, after you get that conception of humanity, then we can continue and talk about this question. Amazing. Thank you so much for your answer. I will let ChatGPT4 know that it got some good answers to its questions. Um, thank you guys to all of you. Uh, Gary Marcus, Atusa, uh, Kastirzada, and Ramesh Srinivasan, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Story today. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Abdurrahman Chalik, Abla Kla, and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Yara Atala. The program was edited by Vinish Vililat, Linen Guyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Monday for our next episode. This week on The Take, what's behind the panic over TikTok? Find it wherever you get your podcasts.